Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Thank you all so much for joining us today. We're excited to learn about reading Vayikra with our children, strategies, challenges, and opportunities. Very, very fascinating and important topic. Here with a great educator, Dr. Tammy J. who is the chair of the Tanakh department at the SAR High School in Riverdale, New York, Gold Star School, and is the founding director of Makom Besiach at SAR, an immersive adult education program for parents. She has taught Bible for the Wexner Heritage Program, and she is also an adjunct faculty member of Yeshivat Chovavei Torah, where she teaches the pedagogy of Tanakh. She received her BA in English, teacher, uh, in English literature from the University of Pennsylvania, is a graduate of the Drisha Institute's Scholar Circle, and a Wexner Graduate Fellow. Dr. Jakobowitz is currently working on a Parsha book geared towards parents reading to young children. She lives in Teaneck, New Jersey. Love Teaneck. That's where my in-laws live with her husband, uh, Ronnie uh, Perilous, who is just a wonderful scholar, and their great four children. Um, I think most or all of who I've met and can attest to their wonderful nature. <laughs> so um, thank you, Dr. J- uh, Tammy Jacobowitz, for being here with us. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Shmuli. It's a thrill to be here. I've been following the Valley Baby Drash for a long time on Facebook. And I would say it's great to be here in person, although not exactly in person, but, you know, close enough. All right. So this is great. You know, in my day job, I mentor teachers. I teach Tanakh. I actually never teach Vayikra. I don't get to talk about this work that I've been doing as a, as a kind of side hustle of my own for the last number of years. And it's really exciting for me to have this opportunity to share with you the work that I've been engaged in. Think about some of the I would say successes and some of the challenges that I'm still working on in this book, which is about three quarters of the way done. So I want to tell you a little bit about myself and how I got excited about this project. As um, Rabbi Shmuley mentioned, I I studied Midrash in graduate school. That was where I fell in love with the book of Midrash on Sefer Vayikra, Vayikra Rabbah or Leviticus Rabbah. And I fell in love with it because I personally had never studied Vayikra. I was scared of it myself. And the the book of Midrash on Vayikra is so unlike the verses themselves in the biblical book. The stories that I encountered in Vayikra Rabbah, and and actually more significantly, the strategy, which I'm going to teach you about today, the strategy that the rabbis used in this book of Midrash to bring Vayikra alive stopped me in my tracks. I wrote my doctorate about a few sections in the book, specifically related to the body and illness, um, the parts that nobody wants to talk about, leprosy, postpartum impurity. Um, And I examined the Midrash on those sections, started to become a mother. As you mentioned, I have four kids. Along the way, as I was reading this Midrash, I also became a high school teacher. And as I started to learn with my kids and my students, I was hungry for books that would help me not just teach them how to decode and how to translate, which we all need to keep practicing, but how to figure out how to find our way into the chapters of the Bible, how to find our stories within the chapters of the Bible. And Vayikra, Leviticus, was just not making it easy. I looked at lots of Parsha books on the market, 
and some helped more, some helped, you know, less, but for many of them, I felt as if I would read the page with my kids and it was over. There was nothing to talk about, especially when Midrash came into the equation. The Midrash was presented very often in these books as the thing itself. And we would read the story according to the Midrash, and then we would turn the page. And I was looking for a way to extend the conversation. I was looking for a way for the Midrash to open things up rather than close them. So that's the book that I'm writing. I'm trying to use Midrash, and I'll show you in a few ways what I, how I'm doing this. I'm trying to use Midrash to open conversations up between parents and children, grandparents and children, teachers and children who are struggling and interested in Vayikra. Um, and I'm borrowing from this wonder, wonderful collection of Midrash. Okay, so I'm going to uh, share my screen and, um, and get started. Okay, so when we think about Vayikra, um, we think about the book of Leviticus. We tend to think of our struggles or challenges as moderns. But the truth of the matter is that some of the issues that we encounter today, and by the way, if anybody here feels like Vayikra is easy for them, I don't mean to out you, you know, that's wonderful. But the vast majority of adults and kids that I have interacted with over the years have found Vayikra to be a stumper. Um, and some of the issues already were relevant and present for the ancient rabbis. What we have here on the screen is a very short passage that comes from the Midrash, from Vayikra Rabbah. It's actually not describing how Vayikra Rabbah itself does its thing. I'll explain what I mean in a minute. But I like to teach this passage because we get a chance to almost listen in on the rabbis we're talking here, you know, third century, fourth century after the common era. We're already living in the in the shadow of the destruction of the temple, and we're trying to figure out what to do with Sefer Vayikra. Said Rabbi Acha in the name of Bar Papa, so that Israel will not say, oops, one second, that in, I can't see my own screen, one minute that in the past we would offer sacrifices and be involved with them, but now where there are no sacrifices, why should we be involved with them? Said the Holy One, blessed be he. Since you are involved with them, I will consider it to be as if you offered them. What's going on in this Midrash is the rabbis are asking themselves a question. The book of Leviticus, the book of Vayikra, Concern sacrifices. In truth, it's only the first few chapters, the first few parshiot, but it's what we associate with Vayikra. There's also purity and impurity. And all of the issues related to Vayikra require a temple. In the absence of the temple, what are we supposed to do? How should we read these verses? When the temple was standing, the verses read in order to learn what to do. There was practical value. Now that there's no practical value, ask the rabbis, why should we bother? And really the option is not to just excise Vayikra because all of the Torah is understood to be eternal. What should we do? What's our strategy? The Midrash here offers a strategy in the name of God, right? God did not come down and speak to them, but they found an answer which felt satisfying to them as if God himself was giving them this answer inside the Torah. And the answer is, if you study them, if you're involved with them, the Hebrew is lihit asek bahem, 
if you study and involve yourself with the verses about the sacrifice, I will consider it to be as if you offered them. This is strategy number one, study in place of offering. Don't study them in order to know what to do, just stay in the study phase itself, right? And as a high school teacher, it's one of the things that I try very hard to teach kids how to do, to see their study as a form of worship. It's not obvious, right, for so many reasons. But here the rabbis are saying that when it comes to Vayikra, and I'm extrapolating to all of Torah study, the study of Torah, and all of you know this because you're here in the middle of the day on a, on a Zoom learning Torah, Torah is worship-filled. Torah moves us. This is what the ancient rabbis are suggesting. This is one mode. Of course, we also know that prayer became a form, right? A replacement for sacrifice. And we are the heirs to that strategy as well. Now, the, the book of Midrash Vayikra Rabbah that I told you I fell in love with does not actually take this strategy, which is study, 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 go into all the details of all the sacrifices, and it will be good enough as if you offered them. The book of Vayikarabha takes a radically different approach. And the approach of Vayikarabha is to select, identify very specific verses from within the book, isolate them, find the nugget of contemporary meaning that is associated with those verses and create all kinds of homilies, sermons, beautiful ideas that would have been relevant for the audience in the ancient world. I always imagine to myself the rabbis that I hear whose voices are inside this collection were, were sort of scholars and residents going up to Tveria and to Tsipori and they needed to know, what do I do when it comes to Vayikra? They chose one idea per week and found inside those sukim, inside those verses, an idea that could reach their audience, that would be relevant, that would be related to Vayikra, but nothing to do with the practicality of actually observing or performing any of the mitzvot that are contained within. That's the strategy that I wanted to borrow from in order to reach kids today. Some Parsha books don't take that tack and they say, let's teach them all because you never know, one day soon Mashiach is gonna come and we need to actually know how to perform them. I get that. That wasn't the approach that I wanted to take. I wanted to, to borrow from this strategy of isolating versus finding a nugget of meaning that could reach a contemporary audience and could be useful in the religious development of children. Okay, sounds great, right? But once I started working on this, the next thing that I, I realized that in addition to the practical problem, Vayikra poses other challenges, there are other, so to speak, barriers to entry. Barrier to entry number one that a contemporary kid faces when they when they open up Vayikra. They might have a pet. I'm on Rabbi Shmuley's Zoom, so they might be vegans. They might be vegetarians. Animal sacrifice is bewildering, right? Never mind, even if you are a meat eater, you're totally anesthetized and removed from the way in which animal when meats are, are meat is, is uh, processed. For kids to come to the verses where it's just so easy to talk about an animal being slaughtered, like there's no context and it's, it's, it's very, um, it can be very alienating and very confusing. Barrier to entry number two, which might even be more significant. There are only two narratives in the entire book of Ayikra. Two stories. 
Story number one is the story of the death of our own sons. It's the one everybody remembers if they remember any story in the book. It's terrifying. It's violent. It's very sad. It's tragic. In the middle of the, this beautiful day of the de dedication of the Mishkan, the two sons of our own die. The second tucked in towards the end of the book is a story of a blasphemer of hybrid birth who curses God and Moshe isn't sure what to do. He asks God, they wait, and they end up stoning this man. Right? A very disturbing, difficult story. And again, for kids who are engaged with Torah study, stories are the way in. And Vayikar doesn't make it easy. Barrier to entry number three. There's really nothing that kind of happens in the book. It's a lot of laws. The laws feel somewhat repetitive. God is really the only character to speak of. You get my drift. So what do you do? How do you deal with these barriers? How do you find ways to bring Vayikra close to kids' experience uh, without pretending, you know, that our world is the same or even close to the worldview of Vayikra? I want to show you how Vayikra works and how I modified it for my book. So here we have the opening psukim of Vayikra chapter one, Vayikra Parak Aleph. I only have here the Hebrew. Um, just to glance at them, if you're a Hebrew reader, if not, I'll tell you basically what they say. It opens with God calling to Moshe and God speaking to him from the tent of meeting. And God says to Moshe, speak to the Jewish people and tell them, if a person among you offers a korban, a sacrifice to God from various animals, right? And then the Pasuk Gimel, the third verse, if that sacrifice is an olah, which is a certain kind of sacrifice where everything is burnt, you should bring a male tamim, right, fully, um, a perfect animal, bring it to the entrance of the Ohomoed, and you should offer it no to his will before God. One more pasuk. Visamachyado, the person who brings the sacrifice, should place his hands on the head of the animal, and through that means he will be atoned. Okay, so maybe we'll have some audience participation for a minute. When you see or you hear these psukim, imagine for yourself, thought experiment, you're a rabbi who lives during the time of Vayikra Rabbah, and your job this Shabbos is to go and speak at one of these synagogues and deliver a sermon, a homily that finds a nugget of meaning inside these verses, which can't be practiced, don't need to be studied in order to understand their content, any ideas for what you might nominate as a place to launch a sermon from? The highlights, you know, might help. Oh, we got one hand. Okay, great. Go ahead. Hi. Okay, so the word perfect is what's jumping out to me as um, something that I would um, work on. The reason why is because there are no perfect animals ever. So nothing is ever perfect. So what I would focus on is that the word perfect doesn't necessarily mean perfect in the physical sense, but perfect as in your heart, your intentions, whatever you're bringing to this into the sacrifice, that is where the perfection is. And even still, that can be perfect. But the idea is those is that you're supposed to make yourself better for that particular, you know, self-improvement in your intentions to God. Towards Beautiful. God. Beautiful. I love it. Okay. So you take, it's one word. You're totally on track. That's how the rabbis do it. You know, one word. And through that one word, you took us 
through the sacrifice and beyond, right? You got us to a place where we can think about our own, our own worship that is not animal-based, but borrows from the ideas that would have been present during animal sacrifice. Awesome. Any, any other ideas? All right, sometimes I've heard people say, well, the other bold there in the beginning, Adam Kiakriv Mikem, somebody from you, right? You could you could imagine a sermon that would focus on the you-ness, like how much of you is going to go into um, worship or you know, prayer. It really needs to be your own. You need to make it personal, right? That might be very 2022, but all right. Um, or visamachyado. The, the idea that a person would have to actually put their hands on the animal and feel a connection to the animal. Um, you could use that also as a launching pad for a personal kind of sacrifice. You get the idea. Okay, what's really, really interesting um, is that the rabbis in Vayikaraba, when they work on these verses, okay, and imagine again, sort of preparing for a series of sermons, they ignore all those verses that we just spoke about and they focus entirely on the first pasuk, what my advisor David Stern would call a throwaway pasuk. I mean, there's a million of them. God spoke to Moshe. Great. What are you going to say about that, right? But now that we know that this is the locus for the sermon, you start to notice things when you're looking at it like this, especially fully on the screen, all on its own. Vayikra el Moshe. Vayidaber Hashem elav me'ohel mo'ed le'mor. Three different uses of the word speech. There's vayikra, there's vayidaber, there's le'mor. That's kind of interesting, right? Vayikra el Moshe, the subject of God doesn't show up in the first fragment, only in the second fragment. Why is it so important that the ohel mo'ed is there? So it's actually, the more you look at it, there's a lot to say. I don't know what I would, what sermon I would draw from that, but here we go. Here's one, here's one example of, oh, before we get there, okay? What I'm about to show you, I call it this. I call it the narrativizing of the law strategy. Um, I, I discovered this through Vayikra Rabba, and it's one of the strategies that I use in my book. What the Midrash is going to do, and we'll see two examples of this, the Midrash uncovers a story that was hiding in plain sight, you know, in and, and, and between the words which seem to be only legal in content. Finding the suppressed story, turning the law into narrative. When I do this in the book, I also ask myself, can there be a takeaway for kids, right? You might be able to find the story, but how will this be useful and relevant um, for kids' lives? So let me show you one example. The Midrash here focuses, if you see at the end, in the highlight in the blue, is our Pasuk. He called on to Moses, Vayikra el Moshe. In order to say something about that opening Pasuk, which appears at the end, tell this this beautiful story, uh, a kind of, you know, almost a eulogy of sorts of Moshe, connecting the dots between different parts of his life, and show us that in that moment that we thought was just the beginning of the book, God is talking to Moshe, is actually a very significant moment that connects to other moments in, in Moshe's life. The Midrash begins as follows, Rabbi Joshua of Sichnin interpreted the verse in the name of Rabbi Levi, a long quote from the book of Proverbs, 
the Midrash does this, begins with a book from somewhere very far away, Bible-wise, attaches itself to that verse, and then through the interpretation takes us to where we thought it would have started, which in this case was Leviticus 1. So the, the verse from Proverbs is, it's better that somebody says to you, come up, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince. Okay, better that someone says, come up here rather than go down. Says the Midrash, what is this talking about? You could probably already figure out. And you find that at the moment that the Holy One, blessed be he, revealed himself to Moses from the midst of the bush, Moses hid his face from him, as it says. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at Said the Holy One, blessed be he, to him. Come, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh. Rabbi Elazar said, the word lecha is emphatic. I will send you. Hey, at the end of the word, to indicate that if you do not redeem them, no one else will redeem them. At the sea, he stood off to the side, said the Holy One to him, and you lift up your rod and hold down your arm over the sea and split it, to indicate that if you do not split it, no one else will split it. At Sinai, he stood off to the side, said the Holy One to him, go up to the Lord, you and Aaron, to indicate that if you do not go up, no one else will go up. Finally, at the tent of meeting, he stood off to the side, said the Holy One to him, until when will you lower yourself? The moment looks forward to no one but you. Know that this is so, for out of all of them, the voice called to Moses alone. Therefore, it is said, he called unto Moses. Not sure that was so easy to understand in my reading, but here's what the Midrash is saying. Starts with this opening pasuk. It's better that somebody says to come up, come up here, than somebody has to tell you, time to move down. Who's that talking about? It's talking about Moses. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the thing you associate with Moses, a character trait, you would all say, humility, right? The story of Moses' humility is the story of this Midrash, but there's a twist. In each one of these moments that are now cataloged, like I said, in a kind of eulogy, is saying, the Midrash rather is saying to Moshe, each time, each of these important moments, when you were needed, what did you do? You moved off to the side, right? Starting at the burning bush, you hid your face. At the sea, you God had to say to you, come on, dude, split the sea. At Sinai, he had to say, come on up. And at the tent of meeting, God said, enough, ad matai. Like how much are you going to, right? It's almost painful to hear, but there's too much, too much humility doesn't do anybody any good. And he said, the hour is for you. Even if you don't feel, and I hear this, I think a lot of people need to hear this when we feel like an imposter, the Midrash is saying, you're not an imposter, right? You, the, the hour is for you. Step step up to the plate. You got, you got to do what you got to do. And so Moshe, at the end, the Midrash says, how do we know? How do we know that this is true, that it was for him, that Moshe was the one who needed to be at the tent of meeting? Because it said there in that opening verse, what we thought was a throwaway, Vayikra el Moshe, only to Moshe. God said, I need you. You need to come right here, right now, into the tent of meeting. Um, I'm ready for you. Please come to me. So you see what I mean? It's a pasuk that just seems to indicate communication between God and Moshe. Nothing to notice. Keep on moving. 
And the Midrash stops us and say, no, you missed it. There's a backstory. This moment is really significant. It's in line with other moments in Moshe's life. There's lessons to be learned here. There's lessons to be learned about the too muchness of humility, the potential for that. There's lessons to be learned here about recognizing when you need to act, et cetera, et cetera. Here's another way that the Midrash focuses on that very same pasuk. Similar structure, the Midrash begins with a pasuk from another book. In this case, it's from Proverbs. Gold is plentiful, jewels abundant, but wise speech is a precious object. Says the Midrash, the first paragraph is basically a paraphrase, paraphrase of the verse. If, you have, if you've got lots of gold and silver, but you haven't acquired any knowledge, you, you really haven't gained very much. Something that our society definitely needs to pay attention to, right? The materialistic accumulation does not add up to what human beings really need. And what we need is the slow process of true understanding, true knowledge. That's the first part of the Midrash. Then where it starts to get bolded, the Midrash chops up that pasuk and brings it right home to Moshe. Here's what it says. Gold is plentiful. That's referring to when everyone brought their gold donations to the tabernacle. In Exodus, when the, when the Mishkan was being built, there was that beautiful pasuk that everybody donated on their own, the gold and the silver and the copper. How about jewels abundant? That's referring to the Nisim, the chieftains, when they also brought precious stones for the Mishkan. But why speech is a precious object, says the Midrash, Moshe's soul was grieving. He said, everyone brought their donations to the Mishkan and I did not bring anything. He feels terrible. He feels left out. He can't get his name on the plaque for, this, for the synagogue or more to the point. He feels that he has nothing to give and he feels terrible, said God to him. I swear that your speech is more dear to me than all of these. Know that this is so, for out of all of them, the voice called to Moses alone, therefore it is said, Vayikra el Moshe. Same ending, same pasuk, which gets amplified, again, stopping in our tracks right at the very beginning of the book of Vayikra, Harsha 1, chapter 1, verse 1, we don't need to go further to find the story. And here the story is not about Moshe's humility. It's about Moshe's feeling that he is not able to give enough. He wants to give more to God. And God says to him, you don't realize it. The gift that you give me is a gift that no one else can give me. And the, the Hebrew, it's shediburcha, right? I translate it as your speech or your prophecy is more dear to me than all of these. Two different ways to read that. One way to read that is, well, Moshe's dibur in the sense that he's listening and then he's going to transmit it to the people, right? He is the mediator. He is the one who communicates the word of God. Or in the way that I understand it, and I wrote about it in the book, Moshe was able to be present for God. It's not Moshe's dibur, it's God's dibur. But Moshe was able to be in the right place at the right time and receive that dibur. And that was a tremendous gift to God. So if I just take you to the next slide, I show you a teeny bit of, of, of right now the draft at the end of the chapter when I write about this, the opening of Vayikra, I talk about this pasuk and I point out some of the 
ideas that we just talked about. And I end with this idea for kids. Sometimes we can forget that being there for somebody at the right time is the best kind of gift. The best gifts do not have to cost money and may not need wrapping paper. These gifts are the ones we share with people we love by listening to what is on their mind, to hearing their thoughts. Next time you want to give a present to someone, you can ask them, how is your day? What are you thinking about today? So that's an example of how I very specifically and explicitly draw from the actual Midrashim. I don't reteach that whole story, but I borrow from not just the strategy, but the content of the Midrash and offer kids who are not necessarily interested in the Korban Ola and are not even interested per se in Moshe's life. This is something that's for them. What can I draw from this idea of presence? Presence as present. I'm getting nervous about time. Okay. Um, we're okay. So another example um, of the narrativizing strategy, and then I'll move on to one final strategy that I use. Um, you know, I mentioned the story of Nadav and Avihu. Now, the story of Nadav and Avihu is really, you know, only one of the two stories, but the, the mention of the death of Nadav and Avihu shows up not just in Parshat Shmini, where the story is told, but it is mentioned at the beginning of Acharimot, right? And the, actually the opening lines of the Parsha of Acharimot are, God spoke to Moshe after the death of the sons of Aaron, when they had brought their korban in front of God and they had died. And following that, the verse says, God said to Moshe, speak to Aaron, your brother, and tell him that he can't go whenever he wants into the Kodesh, but rather he needs to go in the following way. And the verses which follow describe the, the process by which a Kohen Gadol would, um, would, would achieve atonement for himself and his family and for the entire Jewish people on Yom Kippur. Okay, so what are you going to do with that? What are you, how are you going to bring that close to kids? Part of the book, I talk about Yom Kippur. But I also wanted to talk about the, the re return to the story of Nadav and Avihu and pull out, again, the buried narrative that the verse actually does for us, tucking another mention in of the death of, of, the, of the sons of Aaron. And what I did with it, um, I don't have a slide, I'm just reading from it. I remind them that this, about this, this the terrible story and, and ask them, um, actually, maybe I did, oh, I do have it here. Um, the, I, I, I quote here in the Hebrew a little bit from the Midrash, where the Midrash says, um, God said to Aaron, Amar Rabbi Avin, Amar Lo, Leich Nachamo Bidvarim. When he said, go speak to Aaron, your brother, the Midrash is picking up on that extra word, your brother. Why? Wow, we all know who he is. Why is he being reminded of that? Because he needs to be really sensitive when he goes to talk to Aaron. He's going to talk to Aaron, who has just suffered a terrible, terrible tragedy. He is very nervous, presumably, about coming back into the into the Mishkan. And the Midrash here is, is teaching him, is, is telling us how God was teaching Moshe, rather, be sensitive, go to him with love. When you come to the conversation, start it in a loving way. And you see in the italics, the way I'm imagining writing it for kids, after this piece, asking them, have you ever been unsure how to talk to someone who had gone through a hard time? Right. And giving them here, it's not an open, I'm not telling them what to do. It's an it's an opening through the story that, that is uncovered in the Midrash. How could this be relevant to you? How could you think about this? 
when might this happen to you? You might be the person who's gone through the hard time. You might be the person who could be there to help another person. Um, and so these questions are meant to be, again, you know, open questions for parents then to discuss with their children. In the remaining time, I wanted to share with you um, one other strategy that I use in the, in, the, in the book. I have four different ones, but this is strategy number two, um, deeper meaning with contemporary examples. So this is very different. This is not looking for the hidden story. This is addressing, you know, we're talking about mitzvot um, quite explicitly, but instead of teaching them the details, you know, further details of how you might have performed that mitzvah in the days when you could perform it, I try to find a big idea behind the mitzvah that might be really useful for kids' experience. Um, and as, as, you, as you see there, I talk about it, you know, looking for clues try to adopt a kind of um, archaeological perspective, you know, a scavenger hunt in the text, as it were. What kinds of um, strange words, interesting formulations, proximity to other ideas, what could help us get at the big idea behind the mitzvah? Um, so one, one, one example of this is what I wrote about in my dissertation, I mentioned was the postpartum impurity. These are the verses. Um, Nobody likes to talk about them. Lots of numbers, more and more, more numbers for, for a, boy, a girl child than a boy child. You wait longer, longer impurity for the mother, but just sacrifices she offers after she comes out of her, her period of, of impurity. Um, and, and the Midrash on this, on these psukim, again, like the example that we just saw in the first chapter, focus in on only one pasuk amplifies a deeper idea in those in, in that pasuk, homily after homily after homily on the same pasuk. And in this case of the Midrash, I didn't include an example, but the Midrash focuses on the second pasuk, which says in English, when a woman at childbirth bears a male, she shall be unclean seven days. The entire focus of, me, of the Midrash is on what is missing in that pasuk, which is God makes it seem as if women just do the whole thing on their own. Um, as a feminist, it's kind of a nice pasuk, right? But the Midrash actually um, amplifies what's hidden beneath the psukim, which is the role of God, not just in conception, not just in pregnancy, but also in the safe arrival of a child into the world. God is behind the scenes at every moment. So, they're beautiful midrashim. I have found them to be interesting to learn, especially during the course of my own pregnancy and child rearing. But I really didn't think that that was going to be the big idea to communicate to young children. I'm not really sure it's appropriate or useful for them to be thinking about the role of God in, um, in pregnancy and conception. So instead, what I ended up writing about um, in, this, in this section on Tazria is I wrote about this idea of a, of a mother a new mother re-entering public life. And I wrote to kids about that feeling they may have had in their homes, if they remember, if they have younger children, younger siblings rather, that, you know, kind of time stops when a new baby shows up in the house and everything revolves around the baby and it's diapers and it's feedings and it's people coming to the door, but it's not regular life. And I talked to them about how in the time of the Torah, there was a ceremony to help a mom and a family come out of that bubble haze early life of a new child and re-enter regular, the regular stream of life. 
and how we don't have that today. We don't have a public ceremony, but I asked them to think about the first time they went out together as a family to a store, to a restaurant, do they remember what that was like? Um, and to talk about the, the transition from one time to another. Finding a deeper meaning, making it relevant for kids, not getting into areas or arenas that they don't really need to be getting into, but asking them to make sense of their life through the ideas that are present in Vayikra. I want to end by, by sharing some of the challenges that I've been dealing with and thinking about. Um, I'll start with the second one there, the Nadav and Avihu factor. When I wrote about that, that Parsha, and I found a way to make sense of it for kids, I think, um, and I'll share it with you if you're interested, but after doing so and talking about the way in which they they didn't share their idea with each other. They didn't ask advice of their parents. They didn't, they had a great idea, but it just grew in their own heads, but they didn't share it with anybody. And furthermore, they weren't paying close attention to what was going on that day. That was a day of choreography. That was not a day for their own ideas to grow and blossom. Okay, I think that works. I didn't want kids to think that that therefore means if they do either of those things, they will die. Right, that they will actually, you know, find themselves in a place where a fire will come down from heaven and kill them. So I realized that I need to make sure that although bringing Vayikra close to them is really, really important, and that's my that's my objective in the book. You know, have to be careful to make sure that they understand that they are not living in the time of Vayikra. And so when we find areas of convergence or ways to connect to the deeper ideas of Vayikra, that doesn't therefore mean as close as it might seem. And the last thing on the bottom there, I wrote the danger of oversimplification. One of the unique challenges of writing this book is thinking about concepts that we use all the time as adults that we may or may not understand, but when you're thinking about them for kids, it's, it's really hard to get a sense of whether they know what it means. For example, holiness. Another example, mitzvah. What do we mean when we say that? How do we understand it? How do we conceptualize it? And so I'm trying to find ways to, A, reach kids where they're at and use language that makes sense to them, but that doesn't oversimplify and therefore um, not help them grow into a category of thought, which might be just beyond where they already are. Um, so that has that has happened to me in, you know, mostly in, in the books that are usually easier to talk about, like Parshat Kedoshim, uh, that has lots of mitzvot. I wanted to write to kids a, about um, the difference between mitzvot between ourselves and God and the difference between mitzvot between ourselves and each other, and really got me into, you know, an interesting series of, of thoughts about how kids conceptualize mitzvot um, and how kids, kids conceptualize the idea of holiness. So that's where I'm at right now. So it was really fun. I really appreciate your um, your attentiveness. And I'd be happy to take any questions that you have about any of the texts that we studied or about the book or any of the challenges that I spoke about. Thank you so much, Dr. Jacobo. It's, oh, I see we already have a question. Aglaya, hi. Hi again. Okay. So one of the questions that I, that's occurring to me um, now, I might have been just a very odd child, okay? I'm just going to admit it. I might have been very odd. But I remember thinking when I heard 
things about like, well, if you have a boy, you're unclean for 30 days if you're a girl. And it kind of didn't sit well with me. And one of the things that I like reflecting back and everything and wish an adult had said is that um, gone into, well, we understand things in a different way now. Back then, you know, girls were a certain way and boys were a certain way and everything. That was then. Now the world has changed and things are different. But that doesn't mean that you have to like blow off the entire every like you don't have to basically say religion, blow off all of religion because of it. Um, and I have noticed I've heard some stories about like kids like breaking down and crying when they like hear that. Well, scientifically, these things in the Torah and or whatever religious scripture, scientifically, they can't happen, They're, you know or historically, there's no evidence. So how do we reconcile with kids the idea that even if it's not exactly what it says, you cannot take it word for word, that it's still okay to believe that there's a lot of meaning here. Does that make sense? It's, a, it's an awesome question. Um, you know, I deal with that all the time in my classroom. I would say that um, for the purpose of this talk in, in the book, one of the nice things about, you know, writing a book on a on the Parsha is you don't have to talk about everything. And so I do select the topics that I think will be the most generative and the most productive for conversation. So for example, on Parsha Tazria, I, I'm not talking about the differences between boys and girls. Um, I worry, you know, if I if parents are reading this, are they going to also read the Parsha? Will they, you know, will they get into those conversations too? Um, so I'm not taking that on, but I will say that that the, the midrashic approach of saying there's deeper meaning here, there's relevance here, um, already orients you away from asking the historical scientific questions. It gives you a way of thinking where, you know, the eternality of the Torah is the focus in the sense that there's got to be something here for me today. And I'm already not bothering, I'm not getting bogged down in, you know, that was then, this is now. Okay. Thanks. Would anyone else like to jump in and ask a question or write in the chat if you're more comfortable? Um, I'll ask a question actually, sort of on the similar topic. Um, I think that I had heard before an explanation for that, um, waiting different numbers of days for a male child or a female child, that there was some sort of nice explanation um, that maybe it was that if you have a girl, the, the females have that potential to there's more potential for life there and that that was the reason why there was a longer waiting period. I'm, I don't remember the specifics, but I wonder if you know them and could speak a little bit more about that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, one, one of the things that I find fascinating about this topic is that the question of why it's longer for girls and less for boys is so important to us as moderns and the rabbis of the Midrash just did not touch it. You know, that's not what energized them. We have all kinds of theories. I mean, I feel like um, the, I, I can't remember how to pronounce your name. Aglaya. Aglaya. Aglaya's, you know, hypothesis was that there is something sinister or anti-girls, right? And Alex's assumption is that there's something positive about girls. I actually don't think any of those, I, I, I don't know. I haven't, I've never been compelled by any of those suggestions. Um, I think it's mysterious. Um, and and we're overlaying assumptions when we try to make sense of it in that way. And the Midrash is helpful because it shifts us away from all that and says, well, what's really going, the real drama here is that there was a baby who was born. And this baby who was born, oh my God, that is not something to take for granted. 
And I, I'm always um, impressed by, by the midrashim, which, you know, women in those days were miscarrying with way greater frequency than, than we are today and losing babies in infancy. And, and there is a, an awesome, you know, realization there that anything that works out is not obvious. And it, all of it is, a, is an opportunity and a, and a, um, a moment for, for praising God and for. So I, I hear it. I use, I'm, you know, more emboldened by that approach, which is don't take things for granted. Right. And the, and the, and the Midrash is helping us see life in all of its beauty and find the hand of God in places where I would say today, especially with science, we're like, well, no, we, I, I've been watching, there's ultrasounds. I've been watching this child. Really? You've been, you've been watching. Okay. There's someone else who's really in charge. I love that. Thank you. Anyone else have a question? I will say that it's kind of reminding me a little bit of the linguistic term. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I can just see all of those, you know, philosophers getting all into like, let's get into like the meaning of this one word. I can see Wit. Wit oh my God, I can't believe I just said that. Wittgenstein getting kind of um, like going in all kinds of field day directions with this. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's what, you know, what's really beautiful about Midrash is that it slows us down and it helps us, you know, notice word choice and, um, associations and and that's what I'm trying to do for kids in conversation with parents you know it's not just about the words but where does that take you and how will that help you you know think about your life and get to hard conversations you know I write about death a lot in the book because there's a lot of death in Vayikra um, it's hard to talk to kids about it but when you're doing it in the context of the study of Torah and keep picturing you know a parent cuddled on the couch and and you know really going deep for 20 minutes on a Friday night um, and and seeing that Vayikra, even though on the surface doesn't seem to have to do with anything with your life in 2022, it really does. It's an opening. Hey, thank you. One more call for questions if anyone else wants to jump in. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jacobowitz, for joining us today. Um, I have young kids myself, so it's really interesting. I got a lot of really great takeaways. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for, for joining in and learning with us. I want to let you all know about two programs we have coming up uh, next week. On Monday night is our Hammerman Family Lecture with guest speaker Letty Cotton Pogrebin. Uh, that'll be in the evening at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Um, you can join us in person or virtually, so we hope that you can, uh, can attend that. And then on Wednesday, December 7th, we have Speaking Religious Truth to Political Power with Rabbi Dr. Andrea Weiss. Um, let me double check the time on that one. That'll be at 3 p.m., same as today, 3 p.m. Mountain. So we hope that you can join us for that one as well. Um, and again, thank you so much for being with us today. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.